when we're running, we're pounding. There's a ton of force that's put on our body. So we hit the ground, it goes through our foot, to our ankle, to our knee, to our hip, to our back. And we are not stable when we hit that ground. We can absorb the shock fine, but after step after step after step, the body doesn't sustain or hold up that pounding very well. So it needs to be strong. And that's kind of the like simplified reason why you gotta, running alone isn't enough just to keep us strong. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hi, and welcome to episode 49 of Runner Click's The Passionate Runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of TheMotherRunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And right now, we are doing something a little different. In As we celebrate our two-year anniversary of the podcast, we are re-airing some of our most popular episodes. If you are new to the show, then I think you will really appreciate the experiences and expertise that we are about to share. And if you've already heard this episode, if you're like me, chances are you probably forgot a lot about it. And so you are going to be newly inspired and informed. So I can't wait for you to hear my conversation. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. Hey, Mary. Thanks so much for being on the show with me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So how's your morning going so far? It's good. It's cold. But I think I have a different perception of the cold after going through a pregnancy in the summer. And I used to be the biggest weenie about the cold. And I'm. it was, my car said 16, 15. And I was like, this is fine. This is okay. It's cold, but I'm fine with it. And in past years, I'd be like, no, get me out of here. So I have a different appreciation for not hot. <laughs> there is a silver lining to being pregnant in the summer then. Yeah. If you asked me back in August, I would tell you I it was the worst thing in the world. But in fact, there was a day where the real feel was either 80, I think it was 82 at 9 p.m., and I checked myself into a hotel and I, we don't have AC. And I oh. was like, yeah. So I was just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And I told my husband, I was like, you can come, you can bring our son and I would love to have you. He actually, he was like, no, you just go and enjoy it. And it was, I have to tell you, it was amazing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I have no regrets. I have no regrets, but yeah, it, it got pretty gnarly this summer. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, that makes me think of how like, used to living in comfort. I am trying to sleep when it's above 70 degrees in the house is rough. So I don't know. So is that common for people not to have AC where you are? So it depends where, I guess, where your house is. So our 
we have a summer cottage and we bought it a couple of years ago and it's right on the Long Island Sound. So it is definitely cooler there, maybe five degrees cooler than inland just because it's right on the water. But that doesn't mean it doesn't get hot. And the cottages are, they're not super fancy. So there's no AC there. And then it's kind of like, it's silly for us to, I guess we could do like a freestanding unit or build it into the wall, but the ocean's right there. So it's kind of like, oh, you can just go down and put yourself in the ocean. And then (laughs) our winter house, which we don't, because we have the cottage, we don't find like, it doesn't make sense for us to put an AC into our winter home. It was born and it was born. It was built in the 1920s. Okay. So there's no AC because it's so old. And then for us not to be here in the summer, it's like, we don't really need to spend the money to do that. So I have no AC in my life unless I like in my life, <laughs> unless I go to, I'll like go do work at a library or Ikea or I'm a AC hopper if I need to go find it. And that's just kind of how life is up there, I guess. Where are you again? Connecticut, outside of New Haven. Outside of New Haven. Okay. Yeah. It's, there's like one month that's hard. You know, it's, it's like right. gross, hot, sticky, and that's it. And, you know. I lived in Connecticut for a few years when I was younger, but I was outside of New York City. But I don't, re- and our house was new, so we had an AC. But yeah, I don't remember it being awfully hot. I also lived in Chicago and in Chicago, it's like there's two seasons. It's either really, really hot or really cold. And so I do remember it being like beastly hot in the summer. But yeah, up in the Northeast, I I don't remember it being that bad. It's not. It really, it's not too terrible. And it is pretty temperate most of the year. But there definitely is at least a month or two where it's kind of like, oof. And then if you're pregnant, (laughs) it's that much. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oof. It was very, very difficult. And so how old is your second now? She just turned three months. So, yeah. oh, wow. So very new. Yeah. Yeah. She's a champ. She's very chill. Our son was, you know, he was pretty chill. He was a good baby. And we were nervous because you hear all the stories like, oh, if you have one good one, the next one's going to be a monster. And that was not the case for us. And <laughs> she is even chiller than our son. And she, yeah, she's just a cute little button. So we love her to pieces. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. I don't know why people say stuff like that to like freak out pregnant women. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I know. Yeah. She like she started sleeping through the night at two months and we were like, what? okay, <laughs> there's nothing we're doing. She's just doing it. So I, my theory is that because the toddler is so hands-on right now, we sometimes just have to like leave her in the corner and she has to fend for herself. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm sure she's chill because we have to ignore her often to deal with the two and a half year old. But yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens <laughs> long-term. I mean, I do feel like the only constant of motherhood is that like things are always constantly changing. So it's, if it's a good season or a bad season, like it is a season. So yeah, totally. Yeah. We're not getting too comfortable. She's about to go through the four month regression. So I'm ready for that. (laughs) But maybe it won't be that bad. You just never know. Maybe it'll happen. And you were like, what, wait, did we regress or did we just skip past it? I like your optimism. I'm going (laughs) to hang on to that. (laughs) But yeah, no, I, I, that, honestly, that stage was hard. I didn't, neither of my kids were good sleepers. So I, I feel like I have PTSD from like months and months and months of basically no sleep. Uh, (laughs) But so yeah, and you're back in the weight room, you're training already. I saw. 
Yeah. So this delivery has been a lot smoother than my first. And I, it was like one of those things where I knew right away that I just felt significantly better. And the delivery itself, it, it was a lot smoother. I had postpartum complications with my first that I didn't have now. And when I saw my pelvic floor PT at six weeks, I was like, you're going to laugh at me, but I think I'm almost ready to run. And she took a step back. She goes, that is a bold statement. Let's see. And by the end of the appointment, she did say, she was like, you're actually right. You're probably ready to run. The only reason I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be okay for you is because of your history of back injuries and other injuries. So I prefer that you do, you start strength training first before getting back into running. And I said, that's totally fair. I don't even, the urge to run wasn't even really there yet at six weeks. So I got myself back into the gym and I've been feeling pretty good. It's definitely helped nip the last little aches and pains from delivery. That's awesome. I just have to say, I loved your piece in the Tracksmith catalog. Anybody here gets the Tracksmith catalog. It was the winter edition. And you were talking about no comparisons when it comes to postpartum recovery. I don't know. It's just like pretty much everything you wrote was so relatable to me. Actually, I have, this isn't awkward. I have a little snippet that I want to read out loud for people to hear because it just, I don't know. I just love it so much. Postpartum recovery is the in-your-face reminder. What you see on social media is everyone's personal highlight reel. It's a forced smile on the Peloton because that looks so much happier than admitting how shitty you feel and how you only get four hours of sleep last night. It's the finish line photo that looks victorious, but doesn't unveil how much work it actually took to get there. And I just love that so much because we only do see the best on social media and it's so easy as a runner. And then as a mom and a mom who runs to fall into that comparison trap and think, you know, why is it so easy for everybody else? And why am I struggling so much? And just to recognize that that's not real. And like the fact that you're such a success, but you've had to overcome these challenges and you've used these challenges, which we're going to get to in a minute to build this business in which you're helping so many people get stronger and be more confident and improve their running. I think it's just amazing. Thank you. I definitely feel a little, I'm very cognizant of like how easy this delivery has been versus the last. And then I'm like, you know, I have shared photo, like snaps of myself on the Peloton, this postpartum period. And I'm like, I really, I want to also, like, I think having an easier delivery this time has made me aware of how significant and different every delivery can be, be. I feel very lucky. And at the same time, I also know that I had a hard time the first time. And I also know that I felt okay, a year postpartum, but I know there's a lot of moms that don't, and they don't feel themselves two years postpartum, three years postpartum. So I think, you know, I, I don't want to be part of the problem in terms of like posting things that posting myself looking happy because it's, do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I am cognizant that I'm very lucky right now. And I was really honored to write that piece. And I'm so happy that they decided to publish that in the catalog. Because at first, I think it was just going to be an online thing. And then they, I got a message right as like, right after I had my second baby and they, the marketing person said, we're going to print it. And I was like, oh my gosh. But yeah, I think probably I want to pitch to them writing another piece because I think it goes both ways. It can be 10 times worse 
postpartum, but it also can be 10 times better. And I think overall the message is motherhood is just messy and hard and there's no right way to do it. And like, let's just give each other the respect and the, the help and support that and honor everyone else's journey too. I had somebody on my own personal Facebook page, write Kind of a nasty message to me after that came out. And at first it really rubbed me the wrong way. And I got really upset. And I realized she was likely just kind of projecting her own bitterness towards maybe not getting the respect that she wanted postpartum or whatever. So, you know, that's the the one star review among the others that have been really, really positive. And that of course is the one that sticks in my mind. But I think as a entrepreneur and as a writer, that is something that I'm like, well, she's not wrong. You know, some people don't have a hard time or vice versa. They don't feel good a year postpartum. So where's their piece? Where's their, you know, if they couldn't resonate with anything I wrote, maybe there is something I can come up with just to have some type of reflection that they can relate to. So TBD in terms of another piece, but yeah, I think it's just messy and we just need to support each other. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that like you can do all the things while you're pregnant, but that does not mean that you're going to be have a stellar postpartum recovery. I mean, just so much of it is out of our control and it's not our fault. And so when other people are sharing their experiences, not to, you know, place blame on them or judge them, you know, we're all just dealt different hands. And I like that you saw that, you know, that person that wrote on your Facebook page was viewing it through like a different prism than I mean, we all have our own experiences. So it's hard when you share experiences like that too, though, just not to come across as like, you don't want to sound like you're ungrateful or Debbie Downer or, you know, but it's real and it's important to to talk about. Yeah. And, and really pregnancy is very polarizing, very polarizing. I know. And why? <laughs> it's just. Right. Right. I mean, the day I announced I was pregnant, I think I lost almost 200 followers. And I don't usually check that, but I think I noticed a a dip in terms of like what was posted on the homepage. And I was like, oh, I wonder how many I just lost. And it was, it was upwards to 200 followers in a day. And this is just to say like, some people just don't care or, or, and I will raise my hand with this. It evokes a lot of emotion. And like, I struggled to get pregnant for two years with my first And I was that bitter person who didn't want to see it, didn't want to hear it, didn't want to look at other people getting pregnant. And so I would have probably unfollowed myself. You know what I mean? So I get why it's polarizing because a lot of women go through it and a lot of people struggle and are struggling. And, you know, the best thing we can do for ourselves is is self-censorship. And if you're able to do that, like I wish I did more of that when I was struggling. Like I didn't have the wherewithal to know my triggers and know that like I got bitter over seeing other people saying they were pregnant. I didn't realize it until afterwards. And I was like, I probably should have gone to therapy or (laughs) been able to like control that type of bitterness and turned it into something that is a joyful thing. But again, this is going into just like, if it's not serving you, then you have to stick, you have to do what's best for you as a human. And that's kind of like a life philosophy that that's important to remember. Yeah, that, you know, I didn't really think about having that self-awareness that if you're reading something or you, if you see something on Instagram and you have, you know, this just negative feelings about it, like I'm 
for instance, say I'm struggling postpartum and then Mary's there lifting a lot of heavy weights and back running and it's not anything against you, but it's just like, that's just going to make me feel bad about myself. So I'm going to unfollow her for a bit until I get, get myself out of this. Yeah. And then also, I mean, the thing with social media is I read this somewhere last year and it was like, people will unfollow you because they no longer care for the content that you're posting. And that's just like a, it's a business transaction. It's not a personal attack. I'm sure some people want to make it that way. But if you're not posting things, like I certainly shifted from posting a lot about lifting and more training related stuff to more family related stuff. And I'm sure that didn't resonate with some people. So Instagram is a very odd platform and it's changed and evolved so much. And I think it's, I've been fortunate to be in the game for a while and just kind of gone with the ups and the downs and now being able to use it for, for business purposes, but then always making sure to remember in the back of my mind, what its purpose is, you know, it's to personally, it's to share a little bit about myself and my training, and then also to talk about running and my coaching. So as long as, you know, rule number one, keep the goal, the goal. So on days when I feel like, oh my gosh, should I post more? Should I post less? Oh my gosh. It's kind of like, no, just keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And I, I will say I fell in love with your account. You had a real that about not wearing a watch and you had, you, you were wearing a mustache and you had a clipboard and you were the coach and you were talking to the runner. Also you telling the runner to take the watch off and the run and you just, but I can't, I just can't do it. I was like, that is so <laughs> spot on. My husband and I watched that reel over and over again. It was so funny. Thank you. Yeah. I got really into reels and they take a long time. So I, I had to back away from doing reels. Same. Yeah. I don't, I don't do them. I did on the first couple. First they were fun, but yeah, way too much time. And I don't have the freedom as I'm sure you do as well to be by myself and be shooting stuff like that. Cause you know, we have children, so we have little children. And just the ideas like that summer when they came out, I was like popping out ideas and I just, I don't know. I think Sometimes you just go through artistic slumps and yeah. Oh yeah. Especially when you're busy and you don't really have that space to create. Right. So I want to talk about the genesis of Lift, Run, Perform because it it grew out of your own personal experience, right? You were deal- You mentioned you had back issues, recurring injuries, and strength training was what the difference maker was for you. So can you talk about how this all came about? Because I mean, your business is so successful and it's continuing to grow. You have co- you know a lot of coaches now, right? I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Yep. It's something. It <laughs> was never supposed to be this. It really kind of fell into, into what it is organically, which I'm really fortunate and lucky to have. But I, I mean, it started from me just wanting to coach and that's what I was doing. I was coaching on the floor of a strength facility where I live and I started online coaching back in 2016. Yes, 2016. And I was with a different group at that time. And I was also truthfully the running coaching, what I was most passionate about, but not thinking it could ever be a job. Like I didn't think I could ever make a living out of that. So I was dedicated to coaching on the floor at the strength facility and just, you know, continuing to learn. And it's, Running coaching, online coaching in general has certainly exploded for sure. After a year of being with the other group, I decided to branch off on my own because I had my own ideas that weren't necessarily supported. And I realized I could just kind of 
do what I was doing on my own. And so the goal was really just coach my athletes on my own and then also work at this, it's Ramphone training system. So also work at Ramphone. And as I departed from the other group, I had a friend who was like, well, I would love to coach too. And if you have athlete overload, like if you have people who you're unable to take on, could I take them on? And I said, sure. And we, her name is Rochelle and Rochelle and I kind of did this thing together. I was the one who technically opened the LLC, but it really was meant to just be this like duo thing where I was coaching my athletes. And we knew that the best thing that was necessary for athletes was coaching the person as a human, as opposed to just coaching the person focused on a time goal. And that was kind of our our value, our mission statement. We don't, we never really came up with a formal mission statement, but that was just kind of our goal was to coach the the whole human and not just the runner wanting to PR. So from there, more people wanted to come on and coach and it kind of grew and grew. And yeah, now we've been going for about four and a half years. We have nine coaches. We will be bringing on at least three more at the end of this month. And I think the strength component is something too, that there's just not enough information out there about strength training and how to couple it with running and why it's important and why it sometimes actually isn't important for running. And I think just having coaches who have knowledge to break that down, because often what you find, or at least what I found in the strength world is there's a lot of, you know, with exercise science, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of information, but then taking that and conjugating that to something that's understandable for the athlete because every athlete listens to some advice and they're like, okay, well, how does this apply to me? You know, and we're selfish. We want to know how it makes us better, us better athletes. And there's not enough of that. So that is kind of now what we do in terms of strength training and trying to encourage our athletes to do it more. So, okay, let's start with the bare bones then. Why is strength training good for runners? And then we'll do the the flip side. Why is it maybe in some cases not beneficial to a runner. So it helps us. I mean, the bottom line is when we're running, we're pounding. There's a ton of force that's put on our body. So we hit the ground. It goes through our foot, to our ankle, to our knee, to our hip, to our back. And we are not stable when we hit that ground. We can absorb the shock fine. But after step, after step, after step, the body doesn't sustain or hold up that pounding very well. So it needs to be strong. And that's kind of the like simplified reason why you gotta running alone isn't enough just to keep us strong. So the next thing to do is to hypothetically pick up weights or even start with body weights and bands. So basically resistance training is the concept of progressively breaking down our tissues and building them back up. And as we do that, they do get stronger and stronger. And so it can not only make us just a stronger, well-rounded runner, but it also can make us more economical. And that is a fancy way of saying it can make us run more efficiently. So when we feel like we all know those race photos where we're like, (laughs) we've got the like sloppy face, sloppy hips, sloppy everything. Now, strength training doesn't make those sloppy race photos go away, but it will make them a little better. So it's making us being a little bit more form efficient when we're running faster. And it also trains a different muscle fiber type. And that is one that most endurance runners aren't getting a lot of training at. So, you know, there's, I wouldn't necessarily say lifting makes you a good marathoner because it doesn't, you don't need fast twitch twitch muscles to run a marathon, but it does other things. It does the the things I mentioned in the beginning, which, which is it keeps us 
more economical when we're running. It keeps us more resilient. And the whole point of running is to figure out how much we can run while also not getting injured. So strength training helps with that like weird, that weird limbo that we're always in. And it's always so different for everyone based on a lot of different variables. So that's my strength training pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so why is it that running alone doesn't allow us to, to become strong and fuel and efficient? The muscle breakdown just isn't as gr- I mean, it does. So it, it certainly does. When we hit the ground, our muscles do break down and then we, we build them back up when we eat and sleep and all of that good stuff. So it certainly does, but not to the degree as the damage that's done when we are lifting or even climbing hills. That is certainly could be considered a type of strength exercise. So you're going to get more bang for your buck if you're lifting something called progressive overload. So when you're progressively lifting more and more and more and trying to, it's just like running, basically trying to increase the volume at which you're, you're lifting, but then also coupling that with recovery so that you don't just tear the muscles, tear the muscles, tear the muscles. They do a workout, you do squats, you know, your glutes will tear, your quads will tear, all this stuff. And then you eat, you sleep, you try again in a couple of days. And then you, I wouldn't say you would squat in a couple of days necessarily the same patterning, but you just progressively week over week continue to build after breakdown. And you're able to do that at a much greater rate with lifting actual weights than you are with just pounding the ground with running. Okay. So based on, you know, talking about progressive overloading, and I think that's kind of where runners start to get scared because it's sure. confusing and we don't want to waste our time. And I mean, honestly, most runners, if they're faced with, okay, you have 30 minutes, you can run four more miles or you can go lift. They're going to choose running <laughs> four more miles because they just feel like they're going to get more out of that. And they're just confused how, but strength training doesn't have to get, it doesn't have to be confusing. I want to demystify it. You don't have to do these super complex moves, right? So what are the tools that a runner needs in their toolbox to use running to help them improve their running efficiency? So there's five major movement patterns. And once you know the five patterns, you can do anything. But it is helpful to know what they are and be good at them. So like this is where often I'll say if you don't have any experience, maybe find someone, a strength coach or a physical therapist to help coach you through them, to teach you them. And then if you know the basics, you can kind of build whatever program you need. But they are squat, hinge, push, pull, carry. Some people put lunging as a sixth one. I don't. But if you know those five, you can do everything. And any movement you throw, like you could say any movement to me right now, and I would say that qualifies as a X. So in terms of then building the program, my real answer is I would probably just give it to somebody who knows what they're doing <laughs> because nowadays there's a lot of options out there and they're actually decent. And if you're, you're, you're looking for someone who keeps a program using those patterns consistent and progressive. So we're not looking to change up the workout every week. We're not looking to have fancy rep and set schemes. We're looking for the same thing week over week, because just like I mentioned before, it's just keeping it consistent, but then going up in weights, or if you're starting from ground zero, maybe you start at body weight. And then by the end of week four, you can start adding on bands. So that is progressive overload without picking up iron, you know, and then it's, so it's knowing the movement patterns. It's knowing that really on a very simplified level, you just have to do them and do them consistently. 
And then if you're lost, there are resources out there that can just show you what a program looks like. I mean, I have one, but there's other people who are very reliable who can provide that. And then fitting it in and making the time for it. And that is, I think, the huge barrier for a lot of runners. And I talk to athletes a lot about just committing to three, like just commit to a squat followed by a pushup, followed by a row. And just that's it. That's what you do. And then you do that week over week and you're going to get better at those three things. And it's no different from the series of things that your physical therapist might give you, but you only did them because you had to, because you were getting injured. (laughs) So, yeah. So what are some more examples of just the standard moves, like, you know, a deadlift squat? So when you're squatting is, I guess you would squat, you could split squat. You can, I kind of put lunging in the squat category. So lunging, walking, lunging, that kind of thing. Hinging is all of the deadlifting, RDLs. It doesn't matter if it's two feet or one foot. So anytime you hinge, which is basically reaching back with your hips, pushing is, as you would guess, anything with the word push. So push-ups, bench press, sled pushes, and then rows. Again, everything with a word row. So just a single dumbbell row, chest-supported row, bent row, ring row, and was that squat, hinge, push, pull, and then carry. So carrying is actually, it's all quote unquote core exercises, but carrying is definitely more so than, than others. So I challenge anyone to just pick up a heavy weight in front of their body. And what happens when you move that weight further away from your body and then closer to your body? What you're going to find is the further away the weight is, the more your core needs to turn on and stabilize. So when you're carrying something, there's quite a bit of stabilization that's happening. So you can either, again, you you can walk, you can march, you can just sit in one spot and lift a foot. Like there's a lot of different ways that would consider a carry and you can hold the weight right in front of you or on one side for a little balance control. So it really, like I said, once you know the five movement patterns, like it unearths everything. And if all your goal is, is to try to hit all of the five in a week, what if you did that? it's better than nothing, you know, sure, we can get into more complicated conversations about how to progress it and what to do if you're more advanced, but a lot of runners aren't even there yet. So start at ground zero and just get out there and do it and do it consistently and don't make it fancy because the fancy doesn't necessarily mean better. So if somebody's starting from ground zero, you would say focus on maybe those five moves or six moves and shoot for like two sessions a week. Yeah. I mean, I would say two sessions a week and truthfully, like the sessions could be 20 minutes where you have you of those five moves, you pick two and two or three of them and you do three sets of three sets of 10. That's a really good place to start. If you want to get a little bit more complicated or focus, I mean, so we want to go a little bit more fancy and talk about like what you're targeting. Strength rep schemes is technically between, I would say, one to six, five or six. And then when we're talking about something called hypertrophy, which is a fancy way of saying muscle building, then we're looking more around rep schemes of eight to 15. So pick your poison. Honestly, like runners can just kind of pick 10 as a generic. Technically that puts you in the hypertrophy grouping. But the other thing is that runners often don't know how to push themselves in the, in the weight room. It's just like running. If you do it consistently, you will learn, but there is a learning curve. And so it's helpful to start with the higher reps because we do know how to push ourselves in the higher reps. 
And if you are able to commit yourself to lifting more, you will get better down at those lower rep schemes. Even, I mean, I've been lifting consistently for the past few years. Me doing one to three reps is very difficult because I don't get, I'm still learning how to push myself very, very hard for a couple of reps. So don't think like if you're a runner and you don't, you have no idea what you're doing or you have like a general idea, start around the eight to 10 rep scheme and do three sets to do your squat, do a row, do a carry, do that three times and then pick another three. You could even pick a mobility movement as your third. So you could do a, a deadlift followed by row, followed by like a plank or even a, a hip mobility movement. And that's your workout. That's just three sets of three movements done for four weeks and then change it. So can you talk more about the different reps and the and number of reps and how it spurs different changes in the body? Because we don't want too much muscle building because we don't want to get bulky, right? I mean, that's like also another fear that runners have is that if they lift a lot, then their muscles are going to get big and they're not going to be able to run fast and far. So, I mean, often the amount of food that needs to be consumed to actually get quote unquote bulky is incredible. Really? It's very, yes. (laughs) So it is very much a nutrition combined with lifting And in order to actually now what I'm sure some people are listening and they're like, oh, yeah, but when I lift, I notice my pants get like my the legs of my pants get a little bit tight. And I'm I'm definitely I'm sure they do because the muscle is certainly growing, but it also has to be coupled with the amount of protein and nutrition and calories to make the muscle rebuild and get big and bulky. And so it is this like crossroads of like lifting doesn't make us bulky. If we want to eat and eat meat and lift, yes, we will get bulky. And that often also coincides with doing a lot of max out lifts and doing low reps and really going on the, the strength end of the, of the spectrum. When you hear the word hypertrophy and you hear muscle growth, don't be afraid that it's going to make you bulky because muscle growth doesn't necessarily equate to like actual physical measurements of muscle getting bigger. So it like, yeah, there's a first consider nutrition and make sure that like before you just totally ax out lifting because you're afraid it's going to make you bulky, make sure your nutrition is in line and it's making sense. The only way to get bulky is if you're in a calorie surplus. And that is like often, especially for runners, that's really hard to get into a calorie surplus because we're running so much. So like, that's the last thing you should worry about. It's truly more about like fueling, right. And fueling for the activities that you're doing and then just picking up a weight and knowing that, sure, I guess your pants might fit a little bit differently. But then I also would question like, is that really something getting larger? Or is it just your body having a recomp period, and you're actually losing body fat in the process of maybe your your leg muscles getting a little bit larger, because that's going to make you a more efficient runner. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there are benefits for lifting higher reps with lower weights. Because I know there is there's research out there that shows that lifting heavier, like three to five reps or whatever is, does bode well for running performance. For sure. So yeah, but so, but there is still benefit if you are, you know, a little scared to do that, you're scared you're going to hurt your back or, you know, you don't know the proper form or you don't even have access to the heavy weights to, you know, be able to do three reps or three sets of 10 reps. And that's still going to help you. It is. But I think it's also another thing I see a lot 
a lot of times happen is even at 10 reps, runners are, or people, not just runners, people don't know how to push themselves in general. So they'll just breeze through a set and say, okay, that's done. But was that even challenging? Like, then we have to start talking about how to, that conversation I mentioned before about how to actually push yourself. So like, this is, again, this is why some runners will do fine with body weight, but to a point, and then you're going to have to start lifting actual weight. And the same thing goes for doing, I don't know, doing a, a dumbbell lunge with 10 pound weights. Is that doing something? Probably at first, but after a couple of weeks of that, you need to lift more, especially if doing 10 sets per side is pretty easy. Like the way to, again, we're looking to destroy our muscles here. We're looking to break them down and build them back up. And if you can just breeze through something, you're not really doing much if you've been doing it. Again, if you're brand, brand new, then sure, I guess you're doing something, but you want to push yourself. So no, we're not looking for a max out if we're up in that rep scheme, we're not looking to max out at the end of it. But if, if we're lifting around 75 to 80% of our max, and that's just like purely a rate of perceived exertion, so RPE, if we're lifting upwards to 75, 80%, then we're, we're talking. So there's a little confusion about, oh, high reps are bad, and they're not bad at all. They are beneficial. It can help. But are you actually lifting enough? That's kind of the, the bigger issue that you're going to get more bang for your buck if you are in that 75 to 80 correct percent RPE. Correct. Okay. So I posted on my Instagram asking for people to tell me what questions they had for you. And pretty much all of them were centered around the same topic, which is how to strength train and marathon train, how to make those two coexist. I think a lot of confusion also comes from when to lift heavy when you're trying to balance that with running hard workouts. So how does strength training look in a marathon training block? So first, I would make sure that you took, now that we're into real racing again, it's really important to take a month pre whatever cycle you're about to jump into. So like, let's say you ended one and you're, you know, you're going to jump into another marathon cycle, take that month in between to lift. And yeah, you can run. But you're probably going to go down a mileage anyway. And this is a great time to get yourself in the gym. If you're sore, that's okay now because it's not going to affect your workouts. But you have to be intentional about it. Like you can't just say, yeah, I'm going to lift and then not really get to the gym. So I think if you're able to get into the gym in that off period to start and get that base going. And again, we're just looking at two to three sessions. I would say in the off season, like three sessions a week is reasonable. And then when we get into a quote unquote marathon cycle, it definitely is harder to fit it in. It's not impossible, but it also would taper as the running increases, the lifting does go down. So the biggest thing to remember is that lifting does not make you run a fast marathon. And I know that's confusing because like I've spent this whole podcast talking about how important (laughs) lifting is, but it doesn't, it really doesn't. We need to run to run a fast marathon. So I think that's why let's back up and go and lift during the time where running is decreased. And if you like take that time to build up strength and maybe you're listening to this and you're like, Oh shit, I'm already, I'm already in the middle of my marathon cycle. How do I do it? Your hope is not lost. Start small. So start with these smaller sessions where you are in the gym twice a week and organize it effectively around your running. So when I say that don't lift the day before a workout, Try to get as much recovery in between lifting sessions. So if you do do a tracker tempo workout, do that in the morning and either do the lift immediately after or maybe that evening. 
get it inconsistently. Oftentimes people will try once and they're so sore. They don't want to go back in the next week. (laughs) Fight the urge to not go back in and just do it because it's going to be awful in the beginning. I mean, I just started again postpartum. It was terrible, terrible for like two weeks, but then it goes away and you don't get sore. It's just like running. You don't get sore again. Maybe you'll get a little sluggish, but if you are organizing the timing of your lifts, you're not doing lower body, especially the day before a workout and you're eating plenty and you're sleeping plenty, you should have no problem with recovery. If you're showing up to every single run feeling crappy, then maybe take a step back and take a look at the other things, nutrition, recovery, supplementation, maybe get blood work done. But there's no reason to think why you can't recover if you are lifting and running and giving yourself ample time to recover. Now, if the load is just too large for yourself, so maybe you, I mean, it could be any scenario. It could be a newer runner who is just trying to add too much load. And when I say load, that means we could either be doing too much mileage, too much intensity, and then the type of intensity is considered a load in running. So those three things and lifting, then pick one running load variable and the lifting and add it together. Or if you're a more experienced runner, pick a a running load in the beginning of your marathon cycle that you know that you're, you feel good at. So like, let's say somebody's a little bit more experienced. They can do a 40 mile week in their sleep. They can do a couple workouts. They've been training cycle after cycle. And then adding in the lifting isn't going to be that much of a load increase on their body. Then that like, that's when to do it is like in the first few weeks of a marathon cycle. So without being too confusing, I guess the overarching message here is like pick what load you're tampering with first and make it early in your marathon cycle. And also accept that as running and marathon ramp up, the lifting will go down and that's okay. You know, I think having a month or two to not lift is if we're running a lot, it's kind of expected. And so don't beat yourself up over letting it go eventually, but know that you're going to pick it back up post-race. So lifting is good. It's good to shoot for doing those 75 to 80% max lifts in like the off season, in your base phase when you're just running easy miles. But then once the intensity starts to, to go up and you're leaving pretty much all of your energy and you're running workouts, it's okay. And It's not even okay, but it's perhaps beneficial to your recovery to not be doing those heavier lifts on your workout days. It just... Yeah. I mean, I would say it's okay. Like, look, if you can still go out and have the energy to do a lift after, like, let's say we're eight weeks out from race, I would say start six to eight weeks out from a marathon is where you do want to be a little bit more conservative in the weight room, but still even 10, 10, 12 leading into that eight week range, you can still be lifting pretty aggressively in the weight room and know that your body is going to recover from it. You don't want to waste your time either. You know, like, yes, on one hand, going through the motion will help in terms of mobility and just general blood flow, but save that for like four weeks before the race, you know, do your body weight stuff four weeks before the race, just because it feels good to move your hips like that. But if you're still like 10 weeks out, yeah, lift heavy. You can, it's not, that is going to, but again, couple it smart with your workouts. So don't let your workout suffer because you're the programming and the periodization of your lifting is poor. But it's best to keep your hard days hard. Lift on a hard running day and keep your easy days easy. Don't lift on a long run day. Yeah. I mean, that's very simplified. Oftentimes, like it's, I tell people to think of 
your recovery in our cycles. So like what often what I will do is I'll do a workout on one day and then I'll lift the next morning. So if I'm super, like if I did a 10 to 12 mile workout, I'm really tired. And frankly, I don't have time to do a lift that day. I'm going to wake up and that's the first thing I do. I get the lift out of the way because then I'm still going to have around 48 hours to recover before my next session, whether it's a long run or a workout. So that type of organization is way more important than just kind of like randomly throwing in the lifting. And the same would go for a long run. I think you can run or you can lift post long run if you have time. And if you have calories, that's very important. And if you can actually fuel enough for that day, because it's a ton of energy being expended. But if you're just dog, do it the next morning. That's fine. And then either rest the following day or just go really, really easy. And what are, what's like the standard gear that somebody would need to, if they don't have access to a gym or time to drive to a gym, what do you recommend people buy to keep in their homes to be able to challenge themselves enough for it to be beneficial? The adjustable dumbbells that go up to like 50 pounds are awesome. So if you can, there was like a six month waiting list when COVID started on those. They're awesome. They're very, very good. And often more available now that COVID's here to stay. So adjustable dumbbells are awesome. If you can't get your hands on them, then picking one heavier kettlebell, like again, heavy is going to be relative for each person, but I don't know, maybe around a 24 kilo to 30 kilo kettlebell that thing that would be used for things like squats and deadlifts and a set of lighters. So maybe like a set of eight kilo or even dumbbells, you get a set of like 20 to 30 pound dumbbells, maybe two sets of lighter and then a long loop band. So just having a few tools like that can help. And then if you are stuck at home or you're not comfortable going to a gym, if all that you have is that stuff, you can also start playing with things like time under tension and increasing your range of motion for your lifts. So that's another area that doesn't really fit into the, the rep and set scheme conversation we were having earlier, where you can go slow. So something called eccentric lifting, you can, you can lift with eccentrics, you can lift with an isometric, which means you're holding in a particular position, you can do high reps, because if all you have is 10 pounds, you just max that out. And that might mean you're lifting 30, 40 reps. So like, if you are at home, and you, this is all you have, then there's other ways to challenge your body to get to that, you know, 75% effort range without necessarily falling within the, the perimeters we were talking about earlier. Ah, okay. So I'm pretty close to spent after lifting five pounds, a certain weight, but then, you know, that's, I move past that and it's easy, but I don't have access to more weights. I can continue to challenge myself just by increasing the number of reps that I'm doing with that weight or playing with the time under tension, how fast I go up or down etc. You can hold it. Yeah, you can hold it. You can do isometrics. And then you can do rounds of isometrics. And then one that I mentioned that people always forget about is your range of motion. So you can videotape yourself and take a look at your form and try to make your form as beautiful as possible. So increase your range that you're doing any type of a lift. So if you take if you video yourself, and you're just squatting at 90 degrees, which isn't bad. But maybe all you have is a 20 pound weight and you're squatting at 90 degrees, well, try to squat below 90 degrees and increasing that range of motion with that 20 pound weight also technically means you're increasing your strength. What form tips do you have to make sure people don't hurt themselves? Always 
make sure that, I mean, I would say this word bracing is one that is can be confused. And it's basically ensuring that whenever you're picking up a weight, I mean, number one, whenever you pick up the weight, the ability to not brace is hard. Like if I, if I were to throw a weight in your hands, the first thing that's going to tighten up is your core, but bracing correctly. So not just doing like a shoulders up, like a chesty breath is not the same as doing a belly breath and making sure that it, you know, we're, we're bracing our, our transverse abdominis. So a lot of moms listening would know exactly what the TVA is. So making sure that we're really feeling like we have a corset around our belly when we're lifting, that helps so much. And then not making sure that you could breathe through it, but not letting that engagement go is, is super helpful. And then also a, a great cue for things like not just squats for, for almost everything is we can dial our feet into the ground. So, you know, often you can take off your socks and just think about rooting your big toe down and like screwing your, your legs and your feet into the ground, like a corkscrew driving your hips into their socket. And that will help for a lot of lower body exercises. So um, yeah, I would say probably the two biggest things are like bracing properly, thinking about foot engagement. And then for the upper body, that's a little bit more, the cueing can be a little bit different for each person, but oftentimes keeping our shoulder blade down and back and protracted can help like loose shoulders and help protect that, that joint. Awesome. Those are, that's a lot that I have not heard. So thank you. So I'm sure that's helped a lot of people or will help a lot of people that are listening. So what, how has strength training changed your running and just like your experience with running and perhaps like the joy you get from it now? (laughs) When you run without any aches and pains, it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. And I really, I have athletes who have come to the dark side and they will lift more. And that's what they say too. They're like, I have never not had to deal with anything nagging or being concerned about something flaring up. Like just the beauty of being like, I feel good on this run instead of like, oh, my hip, my groin, my ankle. Like, I won't say it goes away and it it's not a hundred percent all the time, but like is very much subsided if strength training is a constant. So I think that's probably the main driver of why I keep lifting. Personally, I have a hypermobile SI joint that was aggravated by pregnancy. And I really have to personally. And if I, I notice that if I let it go, I have little areas that pop right back up. And I, you know, and I do, I, I did let it go before I got pregnant for the second time. And I let it go because running increased, just like we were talking about. I lift a lot and I had to let it go because I was running more and those little things popped back up and I needed to get back into the gym. So yeah. And I also personally, I go to this gym where I've been working for the past several years. And for me, it's a community and a, like, I need to get out of the house thing. <laughs> so Yes. Which is what running is for a lot of us, obviously as well too. And hey, before we wrap up, I wanted to congratulate you on your Breaking Three project, which thank you. You had a bunch of runners go out to CIM, right? And they were able to break three or post some pretty big PRs. Yeah, yep. It was wonderful. Thank you. And we have another one in uh, next month at Houston, and that's being coached by two of our other coaches, Rochelle, whom I mentioned earlier on this podcast, and Carly. And they have a team of eight women as well who will be shooting for the same goal. So yeah, it's something that we definitely want to repeat and also expand to to be more inclusive of other paces. 
But are you going to be in a breaking three project? Because that's that's one of your goals, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the irony. I've helped a lot of people break three, but I have not broken three myself. It's the whole cobbler thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's honestly the, I mean, you do, somebody was just talking to me the other day. They were like asking about the business. And I was like, yeah, I basically created what I would want as a runner. <laughs> and that's literally what breaking three was. It was like, this is all stuff that I want. So I'm going to make it for somebody else. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, we'll see how, we'll see how recovery goes. I feel like I mentioned earlier, I feel awesome. And I'm technically signed up for CIM and whether I do that as like a goal race or hop in and pace the girls a little bit, I don't know. And I don't know. I'm kind of like conflicted if like, is that professional if I run with people I'm coaching? Could we work together or should I just stand to the side? Like, I don't know how I feel about that. And I mean, I love team and I love community, but then I also... I don't know if I need to insert myself in that. So I'm kind of like, I don't have an answer of where I want to break three, but it's definitely one of those things where I'm like, oh yeah, it's happening. I'm so hungry. It is like, it's a no, I'm not, it's, it's, it will have been six or seven years in the making. So I'm just, it'll happen at some point, probably in the fall. Hopefully. That's awesome. Thanks. Well, I, I would venture to guess that the girls going to CIM would love for you to train with them and go with them. But Yes, I can understand that that's a diff- difficult line to walk. Yeah, and I, I have a coach as well. And so I don't know. I mean, he doesn't care what I do, but it's... Oh, it's yeah, like, it's David Roach, right? Yep. Is it still David Roach? Awesome. Yeah, I still work with David. So I don't know. Like David would just say, do what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be different training. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. We'll see. His training is very different. His training is very different. And I've, I mean, I've responded really well to it. The funny part is I've been working with him for three years and then I only have actually run with him for like eight months. <laughs> so, but in those eight months, it was like blast off, crazy, amazing, very quick results. So I definitely drink the Roach Kool-Aid and yeah. I have two. They are amazing. I mean, obviously they're so knowledgeable, but they are just amazing people. I think anything I've ever read, written by them or spoken from their mouths. I'm just like, you guys are, I love it all. Everything. (laughs) Yeah. They're awesome. That's why I like, I mean, I kept them going and I kept updating my training log through both of my pregnancies. Cause I'm like, who doesn't want their own personal cheerleader during pregnancy? Right. <laughs> I do. With a lot of exclamation points and F, oh, F bombs too. Yep. And for people who don't know, we're talking about Megan and David Roach and they have an amazing podcast called some work all play. So if you're listening to this, you should check that out as well. So where can people find you online? So the business we've been referring to is Lift Run Perform. And the, the handle on Instagram is Lift Run Perform. And then my personal handle is It's a Marathon. <laughs> I like the delivery of that. It's a marathon. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with me. This was very, very fun and also very educational. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you for that. It was really fun, like actually talking to you in real life. Yeah, likewise. I've been a big fan of yours. Well, ever since you were one of the first like why I runs that I featured on Instagram. So thanks for doing that. And I've been a fan of yours ever since I started my account. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And thanks for your time. I will talk to you soon. 
Thank you all for listening to the Passionate Runner podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. You can find the full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any of the resources that we talked about at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we would love it if you leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash runner. We'll read these out on future episodes. Talk to you next time.